0: Welcome to this recording of the Activist Lawyer podcast, brought to you from the Granite podcast studio in the heart of Newry City. We are delighted that you could join us at Activist Lawyer, where we will be discussing a range of topical matters engaging not only with lawyers, but people who are committed to highlighting and combating injustices and inequalities. We will bring you our thoughts, but invite you to share yours. We'll be looking for contributors to our blog at activistlawyer.com, as we want your perspective as we unravel and unpack a host of issues. My name is Sarah Henry and I'm a solicitor practising in Uri City. I worked with a human rights firm in Dublin for many years and with a number of rights-based organisations and charities. I'm looking forward to meeting some fantastic guests throughout this series. Okay, so thank you everybody for joining us again on this episode. Uh, Jack in the studio. Hello everybody. Jack is here again. So we had a really interesting discussion with a solicitor based in Dublin in the firm KOD Lyons. It's Stephen Carwin and really, we say this about everybody, but we actually could have talked all day. There's so much. He was so uplifting and...
1: and Very inspirational, definitely, for young students. I'm inspired now.
0: So really, I suppose this, we we touch on a lot of things, but really this episode will really resonate with people who want to get into the practice of Mm -hmm. human rights and public law and just, just listen to his advice and his motivation for him getting into it. So just a brief introduction, Stephen joined KOD Lyons Solicitors in 2013. He specialises in public interest law. He was made associate of the firm in January 2021 and is currently the head of the Immigration and International Law Department with responsibility for identifying and initiating public interest law challenges in a variety of cases. And you'll hear Stephen is from Westmeath, but he's a massive fan of Newry. <laughs> massive fan of the Buttercrain. <laughs> That's a first for anybody on our show. <laughs> so he's a huge fan of the Buttercrain. We hope to see him off in the Buttercrain or the Keys or, yeah. or somewhere in Newry. But uh, look, it was fantastic to talk to him and we hope you enjoy it. It's great to have you contribute to activist lawyer, Stephen.
2: I'm delighted to be here, and again, thank you so much for the invite. Um, it does the ego of the world a good. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: that's good for us to know. That gives us a bit of an ego base too, doesn't yeah. it, Jack? So, um, as listeners just heard... Stephen works with KOD Lions in Dublin. It's a firm, we had a wee chat there about it as well, that I'm very familiar with. I think we went through a big list of names there. (laughs) Jack's probably sitting bored (laughs) listening to to us say, Oh, I know her. Yeah, I used to work with her. But um, I worked in Dublin, obviously, with a human rights and immigration firm quite similar to yours, I think, in many respects, Stephen. And qualified and trained there so it's fantastic for us to have you and practitioners like yourself um, check in with us here an activist lawyer to keep track of developments um, and the excellent public law and human rights work carried out by solicitors like yourself so thank you um, Brilliant. So, and uh,
2: again thanks very much not at
0: all so lots of our listeners have connected with us and we've had quite a few uh, guests on recently who've really been remarkable we've had great feedback and we still have um Students and younger people, I suppose, aspiring lawyers who are interested in getting into law, especially into human rights or public law matters. So we were lucky to have guests provide us with real insights into their work. And um, so I think we'll start off with yourself in, that, in a similar vein and invite you to share your background leading up to your current areas of expertise, just a bit about your work.
2: Sure. Um, And again, I suppose not to go back to birth on these things, but you always tend to, it always tends to go that way. Um, So my parents, I'm the son of two Irish emigrants who moved to Boston um, in the late 80s, and I was born there. And um, I suppose obviously you can imagine there somewhere deep in the subconscious, somewhere there, I've obviously had an affinity with the idea of immigration and being um, an emigrant or, you know, trying to integrate into the community that way. So mm-hmm. I suppose I don't want an interest that way, in, an interest in politics. Um, I moved back to Ireland with my parents when I was about seven, um, and again, I'm not going to say, <laughs> not to go through the life story, but again, I had the interest in politics as I grew up, particularly Irish-American politics, given my background, um, and then I suppose when it came to doing my, my, my leaving certificate at the time, um, I suppose, Law seemed like the obvious choice, given that I was very interested in political activism and in history, but also, you know, had an idea or certainly a conception of how law should be. I mean, I think a lot of idealistic young people do think you can change the world. Um, I was fortunate enough then to get into Trinity College, um, where I studied on the LLB programme and got heavily involved with the Trinity Free Legal Advice Centre, which, again, I'm not sure if some of your listeners are familiar with it, but you know it was. It, it's not only a, a huge movement here in in, in the Republic, but mm. um, again has a very much a focus on activist lawyering and, and trying to make positive change for for particular interest groups. And then I suppose, look, I finished my undergraduate degree in 2012, and I think like a lot of people across the whole island uh, didn't really know what to do next. <clears throat> we were in a situation where training contracts probably weren't the norm um, there wasn't um, a whole pile happening in terms of the economy save for maybe you know people leaving the jurisdiction yeah. and I decided to go on to a research program straight from my undergrad um because I had published kind of in the area of um, penal policy and you know natural justice and constitutional you know reform and issues like yeah. that so again I decided to go that way and I got a phone call uh, one day to attend a talk um, that was been given by Gareth Noble, who's actually a partner yes. in the firm now, and knew nothing about Kennedy lines at the time. Um, and went to see Gareth and was just inspired. Um, genuinely took my took my breath away listening to him speak. Mm-hmm. And again, as I said, you know, I, I mean, I was formerly the chair of, of, of um, Trinity Flat had done a lot of activist work that way and just could not believe that this could be a potential option and really did inspire me. So, of course, you know, a a number of months passed um, and they had a summer training program at the time and I thought, well, this is the place for me Mm -hmm. through my application in came in for two weeks, and eight years later, I'm still here. <laughs> so, so there you go. Um, and you've, you've crammed yeah, a lot yeah. into that
0: space of time. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> we've been looking at some of the work you've been doing, and we're familiar, obviously, we do immigration primarily here. Um, Jack, you had a, a look, there was something, and then we realised Stephen's firm were actually involved in it. Yeah, maybe. so
1: we were looking, obviously, looking at some cases and then doing a bit bit of research into you Stephen, before the podcast and seeing that you've covered as you've said a a number of areas but one that stood out to us was um the challenge to the ban on driver license for asylum seekers if you could just explain to the listeners who don't know just about the ban and then the subsequent challenge uh, Mm -hmm. if you'd like to explain to the listeners
2: sure absolutely so basically um the challenge emanated from the fact that we have Quite a large asylum practice here in the office, or international protection practice. And what, uh, ultimately, what the rules suggest, or the way in which the rules been promulgated, acts as an effective ban on those who are in the international protection process mm-hmm. on seeking um, a driver's license, or to sit a test, or even to exchange their licenses, on the basis that they impose a residence condition. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the way in which those regulations are interpreted. We say are unlawful. Now, the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission have taken a separate case focusing on the discrimin, the, the aspect of discrimination. So what mm-hmm. they say is, you know, that there's no, ultimately their, their arguments, uh, which was unsuccessful before the High Court, very unfortunately, but was that it, it tantamount to an unlawful discrimination. Whereas we say, I suppose in our case, it's is a little wider because we had the, pri- the privilege of not having to go through the, appeals mechanism. Um, mm-hmm. We're looking at a much wider judicial review on whether or not that's lawful as a matter of European law with reference to the you know reception mm-hmm. uh, conditions directive and also in relation to other constitutional interpre- yeah. interpretive points and um, whether or not in fact, the regulations are outside of the primary legislation. So look, it's an interesting challenge. We have a year in October and we have, I think we have four or five uh, clients in behind it and Sarah I think you'll probably know yourself from your days uh, mm. in Dublin and doing uh, human rights uh, practice down here That's often tends to be the case that yeah. you know you start to see issues repeating themselves as they come in um, and as I say we have uh, Kieran Doherty is a junior barrister mm-hmm. Michael Lynn who is um, and both, both yeah. gentlemen are absolute lions when it mm-hmm. comes to <laughs> human rights and equality law Absolutely. and we're all very passionate about the point yeah. so um very hopeful it will succeed it
0: <laughs> and I mean it's in the wider context that point um, is very relevant because it's the first time we're actually seeing political movement around direct provision which indeed of course is you know, where, where most asylum seekers many of whom are waiting for years and years and we've seen horrible Um, press coverage about deaths within direct provision centres and you know it's startling that people have not realised that that practice has been going on for isn't it over 20 years or more in in Ireland and um, it's the first time that I've really seen issues impacting asylum seekers come to light publicly as such the driver's license is an issue you know the right to work and the abhorrent uh, living conditions yeah. for children and um, parents and so it's good that these matters are finally you know coming to the fore and I think obviously a great legal team there behind that so that's really interesting Um, and just Another point that I was personally interested in, just because of our work here, you'll know I used to do a lot of EU treaty rights cases, and of course this is all yeah, under yeah. The, the the pillar of the the direct directive of free movement, which sadly, um, you know, we can no longer yeah. rely on that in, in this part of the world in in the north. Yeah. But um, you have obviously, and I mean, the problem there is that they've really, you know. Decades of case law has been built up around EU treaty rights and overnight, practically in the UK, that's just vanished, you know, when they're putting in place other kind of um, procedures. But you had two interesting Court of Justice references um, around dependence of EU national workers as well. Um, Is there any update on that?
2: Yeah, so again, uh, they're very, very interesting. Well, sorry, again, I I always find this when when I'm talking to to fellow lawyers and lawyers, we find these things very fascinating, you know, in terms of procedural challenges. And I hope other people also find them interesting. But certainly, um, to me, it's about the human interest behind these, these stories. And as I said, um, that to me, that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. So th- th- I suppose one challenge is in relation to the Child Benefit Directive mm-hmm. and the interpretation of when someone is entitled to child benefit as a worker, even if an application hasn't been lodged for child benefit and how those rules work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that suppose, a bit more of a, a niche challenge. And We got a reference from Mr Justice Humphreys in that case mm-hmm. um, in January. That case is the Stan case. I suppose the more interesting, wider challenge is the decision, um, which is it's currently before the Court of Appeal, but they've indicated that they're going to give a reference in it. The case called uh, Votan, okay. um and the Chief mm-hmm. Appeals Officer, and basically what that deals with is exactly that. You know, it's it's cases of EU workers who have been living here, mm-hmm. who are, are working away, and have brought their parents or elderly dependents here for various reasons i mean again to provide support um i know myself uh, i'd be lost if i didn't have my parents and and my wife's parents you know as as child binders and to to help us out and really you know the point in that case is whether or not ultimately if someone is a direct dependent on an eu citizen whether or not they lose that dependency if they then go to seek financial assistance and our point is you know very much that the case law from Europe point very much in our favor um, we're hopeful that the European court will uh, continue to give a very expansive interpretation on you know free movement rights mm-hmm. and, and and those particularly those who are direct dependent on um eu nationals and I think it's very disingenuous of the state to be fighting these types of cases personally speaking Absolutely. um mm-hmm. I understand why they do, um, and and everything comes down to economics and and to money, but I think um, when you see and when you're presented with a case of clients who are literally trying to make ends meet, you have one person who's working as hard as they possibly can to try and maintain a full family, Um, it does kind of stick in your craw a little bit um, when you see them fighting someone over what is tantamount to maybe a couple of hundred euros uh, uh, a month, you know, and I think that's why, you know, I'm so delighted to be here talking to other activist lawyers because I think you probably feel the same when you're faced with these situations and you're looking at them in in a micro context, you know.
0: You are, and we're dealing with it now um, with the legacy of the free movement cases kind of transitioning into this whole, the EU settlement scheme for a very short period of time left in that. Mm -hmm. But again, this issue of dependency Mm -hmm. arises and it's down to the pounds, shillings and pence and you're really you know it's not looking at it in the broader context it's more difficult here because this is a new area that we're getting into but again like yourself you're seeing grandparents and you know families who've been living here or who have made the decision to move and you know it's interesting to see how the home office will in fact interpret um the law Mm -hmm. or the policy that they've laid out in this kind of very strange post-brexit era but um, yes, it's we'll, it's we'll keep. It's in.
2: a tough. It's a tough one. It's a tough one for you to deal with, I have to say. And
0: it is. I, mean, I know from there's no precedent, mm. you know. And anyone we speak to, any of our practitioners, we have a great circle of people up here. Fantastic immigration mm. um, lawyers, and we just bounce ideas off each other. And nobody has a real sense of what's going to come next. Yeah. Um. Once the and I think
2: I think what's difficult for practitioners in your space, I don't know, Brian, you rest. Um, who works mm-hmm. with David Gray, that yes. is in Newcastle, would be, she's part of a sister firm, we're part of an independent law group, and I know I've, I've spoken to her on a number of occasions, and really what keeps the system running is lawyers, like you say, and, and, and people like Jack, and, mm-hmm. you know, people like Briony, who are willing to stand up and, and do what's right. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I... We are often much maligned as a profession. You know, you always hear about you know fat cat lawyers and you know legal aid fees being too high.
0: Yes. Um, <laughs> but
2: really it's this type of work that people decide they don't want to publish. Yeah,
0: no. <laughs> you know. It's not about the money. No. But um, No, yeah, no, certainly it, not. It certainly, it certainly not. isn't. But um yeah, so lots to talk about with immigration. I think for us it's great to have because we're on the border here as well in Uri we dip in and out of both jurisdictions, so it's just an interesting time um, to see how things develop and, and regress, perhaps, up here. But um, just moving on, because I could talk about immigration all day, know. I tend to get <laughs> wrapped up in it, but we'll, we'll do that again, Stephen. Just getting back to Not something really. I know recently you've been involved in, and it's something Jack and I have chatted about loosely Um in a, a number of episodes, but it's um, you've been really homing in on one particular aspect of this, although you've covered it generally. But we've been looking at the obviously the appalling abuse and institutionalisation of women and children in Ireland through mother and baby homes and the Magdalen laundries. We spoke before about the commissioner's report that issued at the beginning of this year, and we find it very tough to listen to the horrific testimonies that followed that report. Um, yeah. We know there was an apology from Antishok, Um but serious matters continue to haunt the families of victims and survivors. And I know you and KOD Lions and practitioners like yourselves have been involved in some of these issues um, and the wider mm. case in general. But um, can you just maybe let listeners have your kind of thoughts on this matter? Because it's still very relevant and I think um, there's certain issues that are going to continue to arise out of this that we're not really fully aware of yet. But just in terms of your connection with the survivors of the Mother and Baby Institutes over the years, how has that been going?
2: Yeah, I mean, I have to say um, I, I was um, very concerned um with this issue for a long time. So my former colleague, Wendy Lyons, who's now, uh, and again another great activist lawyer, Uh, who set up with another former colleague of mine, Elizabeth Mitro and Abby Law, you know, first introduced me to the idea of the, you know, the the Magdalen scheme at the time when I was training here. And, you know, the horrific abuses that occurred there. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to see a lot of the same issues emerging. And I know, again in your in in the north i know uh, there's going to be investigations coming down the track as well my understanding is that dr Mabel Rourke will yes. be leading um, certain investigations in relation to, to that and um anyway to, to 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 come back to it i suppose um really i suppose our challenges we have a number of different uh, i suppose involvement mm-hmm. a number of different avenues of involvement with the mother and, and, and baby home cases so i mean the first thing that we represent a number of people who, who gave confidential um, testimony to the committee. And, you know, uh, like, I mean, it's it, it was premised or supposed to have been premised on the Commission of Investigation Act 2004, where there were certain procedural rights given in relation to testimony presented, the right to view it, the right to essentially cross-examine it, <laughs> and an and issue of response. Um, like that seemed to have been thrown out the window. Um, uh, you know, that was kind of my first involvement in it. We've taken a number of challenges on front of that now, mm-hmm. which again were publicised in the media, I suppose. Uh, and really those cases were, to me, a- another slap in the face for survivors who were not only disappointed with the Commission's work because it wasn't as ex- extensive possibly as it as it could have been, they had a number of genuine complaints about not being listened to properly or, yeah. or, or considered, um, and then to have their testimony placed in uh, the public record to be essentially either spliced or you know changed or misrepresented, um, while also having unique identifying features to them mm. and not giving them a, a chance to respond to it w- was a real slap in the face mm-hmm. for, for for those survivors. Um, I suppose in terms of then the Bespera um, group, I mean I'm involved with a group called the Cork Survivors and Supporters Alliance. Um, and I've had them in a in a planning dispute with yeah. on board Planola where the developer um MWB two are essentially looking to build a block of yeah. apartments yeah, where I mean you know we say that there was or there is evidence that there was a children's burial ground you know ultimately where where they're looking to build now i mean again we're waiting on the decision so it would be interesting to see how on board planala actually deal with it but to me what really struck me i mean outside of what our group were advocating for Mm -hmm. um which was you know proper memorialization and, and respect yeah um there was a brilliant piece from two survivors so mary slattery and another lady called terry harrison and i mean their point was essentially you wouldn't see this in places like you know and again not to make a direct comparison with the holocaust because i don't think that's appropriate but i can see the 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 idea Mm. of what they were suggesting absolutely Mm -hmm. which was you wouldn't see a building a monument like this in daco you wouldn't see them just building apartments there, like Wholly, wholly inappropriate in my view now mm-hmm. look my clients they see it today are absolutely in favour of reasonable and sensible development but in an alternative location mm-hmm. and you know look we'll see what i'm working on Barpanola eventually come up with
0: yeah
2: but it's another just another slap in the face and look so you probably know yourself dealing with survivors you know who who come through the system like that yeah. there's a massive amount of distrust for authority and skepticism yeah. Even for even for lawyers, I mean, they they, they are sceptical, and rightly so when you see the type of things that continue to happen. And um, and then and then I suppose, finally, honest, uh, there's a proposal for some sort of a redress scheme that doesn't fully engage with the wider survivor community. Yeah. They, you know, the, the the proposal is essentially as it stands, and although the Dal are there is a select committee to to look at some of the issues. I mean, their proposals are far too narrow. And what they're doing is they're preferring certain survivors over others without giving any sort of a logical or logistical basis. So, to be honest, that's the hardest part in dealing with these cases. The Mm -hmm. trauma that has occurred is extremely bad. But it's to see this ongoing victimisation, and um, it, it really
0: does. And I mean, that was really the con- that was the concern that campaigners and I mean people like Catherine Corliss, who of course was instrumental in all of this, and um, the the local mm. historian historian in Tomb in County Galway, um, who uncovered uh, the the burial ground there. But as you say, this was the apology was one thing, but they didn't, you know, they want action. People want action. And you're right, this is like a slap in the face. And I remember years ago dealing with redress screen, a redress screen, a scheme, sorry, for survivors mm. of boys' homes in Letter Frack in different parts of Ireland. And again, that lack of that distrust is so prominent and and you're right for lawyers as well. And you're seeing how, you know, the money means nothing. <laughs> it it doesn't really address it, it you know, it's so narrow. So you would think this time round, given the report, given the huge public outcry as well, that mm. you know that would be the end of it, and these people and survivors and their families would see uh, proper. Absolutely,
2: risks. Uh, uh, and all I can say this time, um, compared to maybe previous times that we have been involved, as I said, even with the Magdalene cases, mm-hmm. um, politicians for the first time, certainly that I can remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, are really sitting up and paying attention and wanting to, to be to be activist um, politicians which again you would expect it goes with the territory but you would be surprised the level of resistance you would normally meet yeah. but I mean we represented the CSSA before at our active subcommittee in relation to um, the burials bill which is a controversial bill to deal with some of these legacy mm-hmm. issues and how they're going to deal with these types of cases and all I can tell you is I've never seen cross-party support like this. Mm-hmm. you know we had you know, Kathleen Function, who was there, Mary Siri Kearney, Erin and uh, Lynn Rowan. you know, a number of people from cross party agreeing, good. like yeah. pretty much agreeing across the part that something has to be done, and that ultimately money was no object, yeah. um, which again is surprising. Now, look, I suppose politicians might say one thing and do something else, but even to have that on the record, um, yeah to the survivors, they feel listened to, you know and it's and, and I think it is important and I also feel awkward kind of speaking on behalf of, of supporters I've been asked, as you can imagine, because it's gotten so much public traction to kind of you know, make comments in papers and stuff and I I tend to de- decline because I think you know, the problem with a lot of these cases is you have the, the white fella <laughs> from the middle of the country, you know who's from a, came from a very very, very happy home and, and a great existence and, and didn't have the, the problems or the, you know, a, a, the persecution of a system on him, and then he's meant to stand up and, and kind of speak up. It's it, it's a funny position, and, and I have to say, uh, the survivors have, have always been very, very complimentary and always very helpful. But it's a it's an interesting space, and, I, I, and as I said, I imagine it's a feeling felt by a lot of lawyers in this space that mm-hmm. there are times when we just have to sit back and listen. Um, and it's it, it's a hard skill to learn. Um, it's a hard skill to learn, particularly when you might see a legal avenue for address or a great point from the European Convention, you know, that you might try and run. But it's not your case and it's not your point, you know, and it's it's always important to remember that, I think.
0: Yeah, well, look, that's really kind of a humble way to look at it. But I guess you're right. The the thing is as well, I think it's a collective effort. And I know here, just looking at what's happening in Northern Ireland on the back Of the Commissioner's Report, we've spoken to solicitors who've been leading the way on this too, and similarly to yourself, you know, they've said that as well, it's important to just sit back and make sure this is survivor centric and, you know, um, work with the organisations like Amnesty in Northern Ireland have been very local on it and even the survivors groups yourself like you mentioned one there have been absolutely fantastic so it's a real collective effort I think um and pulling these forwards I suppose Northern Ireland have the advantage of only starting really to delve into this now looking what has been done in the south and I think a positive thing like you said Dr Maeve O'Rourke I think Phil Scranton there's a number of others who are there to take um advice from the survivors as to how they're going to start this investigation or how the executive are going to help with this. I, 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 which and where I, have, where, where I think the executive...
2: Where I think the executive actually made a very positive step in the north is by bringing in someone of many expertise um, and, and, and and knowledge. Um, yep. I mean, an, an, an unbelievable campaigner. But as I say, the lessons that you would learn from the likes of Dr O'Rourke mm-hmm. and from, you know, people in the NGO sector yep. is that it is important that you are not... Pushing your agenda, you know, Um, because it's very easy for it's very easy for us all to do it. And I have to say, it does keep you humble as a as a lawyer. You know, when you might spot a brilliant legal point or something that you think is great, but you always have to bear in mind that it's not your instructions and it's not you that has to deal with the 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 legacy. And and that was something I struggled with because. You know, uh, like, we always think we have a good sense of justice, but really, (laughs) it has to be victim and survivor-centric. And if it's not, it's a waste of time doing it. The the great thing about the the process that's been envisaged in the North is that you do have good people there who are very, very... you know, attune with those issues. I think
0: so. It was refreshing to see that um, that announcement made there a couple of months ago. So hopefully they'll get on with that and we'll see some movement around here and again it would be interesting to check in with yourself again Stephen to see how you and Kod Lions are getting along with your cases too. Just um, something, so we're, we're kind of moving from one thing to another yeah, no, but there's totally too different. much to cover with you but um, Jack and I again, not to, to kind of linger on this point but you a few interesting. Yeah, it's a it's
1: it's a topic that uh will be talked about for a long, long time. But as Stephen we were speaking before we press the record button, you were listening to the Colin Harvey um podcast episode. And I know that you've been following this topic in terms of promoting a cross community, cross border discussion uh, on this matter, as it is such a significant constitutional issue. The theme of a new or shared Ireland is widely debated and will be widely debated for a long, long time, both north and south. But given your position in Dublin, in the Republic of Ireland, I'm keen to know your thoughts on the topic of a shared island and how we might organise and structure an inclusive debate such as a citizens' assembly
2: brilliant uh, and, and i'm delighted to comment on it jack and yeah. i tell you it, it's one of those ones again you kind of feel a little uncomfortable speaking about it sometimes and maybe it's because I'm, I'm 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 on twitter too much I, I, i'll be honest with you that's probably what it is um, we kind of get thrown and look it can be a toxic place at times but yeah. sometimes you get a you know feeling of a sentiment or a mood and, like you know, you always feel like an impostor. So like, what I mean is that the view from you know certain people of a uh, political persuasion in the north of, of people from 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 the republic, is that you know where these you know. Uh, we love the only thing we love about the north is tipping up to the buttercrane shopping centre in Dury <laughs> and buying a cheap bottle of vodka. And, you knock it
0: up now, you know, <laughs> You'll be sitting singing, in traffic for singing, three hours. Singing,
2: <laughs> well, there you go, exactly, and, and singing rebel tunes and doing all that type of stuff, but not really knowing about anything yeah. and not really engaging with discourse. Um, and that, uh, look, to be honest with you, I understand that sentiment, um, it, and it is a difficult one, mm-hmm. and it's and it's a question that's been avoided, really, and it's a shame I suppose, well, certainly from my perspective that more people aren't discussing this more clearly.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I have to say from a legal perspective, it's funny even how the discourse and the narrative around the shared island, you know, particularly through the work of Emma de Sousa, who I know was also on your, on, on your podcast. Yes, she was. And, 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 and Colin Harvey. You know, it's brilliant to see that it's not really about the orange and green and I think that that is, you know, uh, I, th- I think that this course has to develop in, no- in another way. Um, from a legal perspective, I mean, in the South, you have the likes of David Kenny and Oren Doyle, who've discussed for a number of years about, well, how will it look in terms of their framework and what legal procedures are going to be put in place? and You know, uh, how, how is it going to work in terms of mechanics? Mm-hmm. And it's only now that they're starting to engage in substances and what does it look like? You know, yeah. Jim O'Callaghan, again, I know was referenced the other day. You know, it's things like, um, you know, issues that are of, imp- are of importance, the symbolic things, things like flags and things like, you know, <laughs> taxation. You know, those, those issues are now starting to be discussed and debated. But I mm-hmm. think within that, what's really, really important is that we keep a focus, not necessarily on the united Ireland, mm-hmm. but a shared Ireland. Yeah. Um, and I think that was a... a Really striking theme of of, of uh, Colin Harvey's uh, podcast mm-hmm. yesterday, which is that look, and to do that, I think you know we need to be thinking about well, what are the human rights norms and mechanisms that we want to uh, talk about? What are the ones that we do share, and whether or not when we're coming up with a solution, is it going to be? You know difference to maybe what we would have seen in the 2000s i mean how are we going to structure this arrangement that way but i think it has to be premised on a debate a debate about well, what do we want um, yeah. and i think in terms of the south there's a lot of apathy um in, in terms of the wider question but i do think it's funny because the same people who are maybe apathetic about the question are the ones who also want domestic reform in terms of rights protection Yes. and political change. And I think that could be the way or the hook, I suppose, to get people talking about it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and Jack, you mentioned about the, you know, the idea of nearly a citizen's assembly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that is an, an absolute must. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think anyone who's talking about a border poll happening, I mean, that's a matter for obviously the citizens of the North, yeah. um, to, to make their decision on that, as opposed to, as I said, some, some, lawyer, <laughs> some lawyer from the South coming in and saying it needs to happen. But I think having firm timelines in place. Yeah. And I think the way, you know, to, the preemptor to to that is to have some sort of a shared island assembly. Yeah, definitely, for sure. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I know, and we're discussing it in different times now. I mean, there's so much context to this. It's such a vast debate that you sometimes it's hard to get your head around it yeah. but i think it's fantastic and i mean for us jack this podcast has been brilliant likes of yourself stephen and people on giving their perspective but it's an exciting time too and it's bringing up lots of issues i suppose that have been you know kind of uh, left out of uh broader public discussions yeah. in an all ireland yeah, yeah and i think time. i think
2: it's important yeah yeah i think it's important because uh, we don't want to take it for granted no um and 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 I think it's incumbent on people who want to keep the system the way it is mm-hmm. to justify it. Yeah. Um. Uh, I re- I really do. Mm-hmm. Um. And I think initiatives like like you have here, where you know, and again, I'm very humbled to be a guest here, but I think it's really important because we share so much. Um. You know, as as a, as an island, <laughs> In, regardless of what your political bent is.
0: Um. Exactly. And and a lot of
2: this discourse and narrative does need to happen. Yeah. You know?
0: Absolutely. Well, we look forward to um, progressing that uh, again with some yeah. interesting guests coming up that I think you'll like to listen to. But just um, the question that we, ans- we ask all of our guests is around yeah. the concept of activist lawyer. And you yourself clearly have not shied away from representing the vulnerable in society and also through your work. I mean, it's a vast array there of uh, clients that you've been able to act in respect of and and make change happen, which is the crucial thing. But just from your perspective, how important do you think activism is today? And what advice would you, Stephen, have for our listeners who would like to get involved in your type of work or become active, I suppose, even outside of law in respect of a particular matter um, that they're passionate about?
2: I think it's vital. Okay, and I think uh, the reason that I think activism is vital as a profession, um, whether you're a barrister or solicitor or or whatever role you have within a firm, um, I think it's important that we are heard because law as a tool, and again, without getting too philosophical on it, but I mean, it's a political tool um, and it's a tool that demands change and it's a tool that demands people to stand up and to advocate. Um, Now, being an advocate doesn't mean, you know, that you're um, pushing pushing an agenda for your own good. It's mm-hmm. that you're, you're hearing what people are saying um, and, 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 and trying to push it that way. In terms of the advice that I'd have is simply, look, get involved, get active, right? Whether it be from a political perspective, for, for me in the Republic, I mean, I've said groups like uh, FLAC, um, in the Free Legal Advice Centre, yeah. the Penal Reform Trust, I think it's vitally important the other thing I'd say to, to people who are focused on doing this type of work is dispel yourself of, of any sort of a notion that it's a handy gig, right? There are long days, there are late nights. Yeah. Um, there are times when you are in a very, very bad place in terms of, you know, you could have had a very, very bad week, it could be tough. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with clients who are extremely vulnerable yeah. and bring their own baggage, particularly in the asylum case. I mean, you're talking about people who are fleeing persecution, mm-hmm. who are skeptical of authority, and then you're coming in, you know, <laughs> trying to try, trying to solve the world's problems. It doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Um, you do have to have a lot of patience, okay? Things, and again, Sarah, I'm sure from your own work, you Mm -hmm. can attest to that. Things do not happen overnight. Mm -hmm. Uh, Legal points don't just spring up overnight. Uh, And I would say, look, to law students, I know you're probably sick of hearing this, right? Because every lecturer under the sun told me to do it when I was in my undergrad. Don't know if I fully appreciated it, but read as much as you can (laughs) okay not only in terms of you know judgments themselves but kind of you know as i said the political side of things and 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 and, and knowing the context to how things have arisen i think is important um i mean other than that just never be afraid you know i think it's really really important particularly in today's climate that we're not marginalized or disenfranchised for having a view Mainstream media, and again, without putting the tinfoil hat on, you know, there's a lot of stuff that appears in papers as a, as a way to try and somehow balance the discussion. But there shouldn't be, right? That's not how it works. Um, how it works is that you individually have to get out there and make your voice heard. And I, think it's, I just think it's extremely important, and, you know, particularly both North and in the Republic here, um, that all lawyers are looking at that common purpose. It's yeah. not necessarily, again, as, as Emma pointed out, not necessarily, you know, green and orange. This is more about societal issues and how we want to take control of, uh, you know, the discourse. As students generally, and as people who are interested in politics, most lawyers in this space would be. We're very privileged. We really, really are very privileged. Um, and as I say, there's times when it doesn't feel like it. But well, I can tell you, stick at it. <laughs> it's yeah.
0: the biggest thing I could say. It's so <laughs> worthwhile, and it's tough. And you need a bit of grit there, and just everything you say, I can completely resonate. And Jack's starting off in his journey yeah. now into this, this world, and but, I, you know, I'm sure this this is really kind of important advice for you, yeah, Jack.
1: Definitely.
2: <laughs> but it's important, Jack, just to point out. And again, you know, just speaking to you, you know, obviously personally here on the phone. I mean, you're showing extremely good fundamentals of what it takes to be a lawyer here. You're asking the questions you're thinking about these issues and that is really what is the difference at the end of the uh, end of the day between an average lawyer look we're all you know there's there's good and bad everywhere yeah. but they're really really accepting the lawyers the wendy lines of this world the, Ethan McNichol, the Chiefs, you know yeah. the up-and-coming lawyers here are ones who are just not willing to give up they're willing to fight even when it even when it looks hopeless and that to be honest with you is probably where uh, we, we get the most fun out of winter I'm sure, uh, yeah. when it looks like we have no <laughs> hope, <laughs> you
0: know? And there's so many resources out there. I mean, just not to, to labour on this, and this is another point for discussion, but even with volunteering and, you know, getting involved with groups, I remember hounding the refugee council in Dublin for a long time, literally <laughs> begging for an internship. And somebody, I think it was yeah. actually Kira Smith, and um, who taught me in Galway University, human rights yeah. lawyer that got me in, in the end. But but it's just having that determination and grit. And it is hard. It's hard going. But at the end of the day, it's so rewarding. And I think that advice, Stephen, is absolutely just yeah, thank you very spot much, on for our listeners. So thank you so much for joining. Like that was, We covered so much. But so again, we yeah. could go on for quite a long time. We hope to well, have yeah, you back and, on, and Stephen. Hopefully, hopefully
2: we can. hope hopefully we can meet for a point near the butter sometime soon and unfortunately oh. as, a, as a real good southerner that's that's all i know when i think in newry uh, there's so much more to see there's so much more <laughs> <work>. there's the <laughs> keys as well, well I'm
1: sure we'll
0: go to
2: we'll tip up to warren point for an afternoon or something absolutely <laughs> you're more than
0: welcome and um well look it's been fantastic and again thank you for joining us and we'll get you back on again soon
1: thanks steve no problem John. thanks so much